the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. We're happy to be with you. Yeah, it's a hot, sticky summer day here in Pennsylvania. Thick August. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell me something. What do you think of summer? I was driving home from Mass this morning, daily Mass, and the corn is so tall right now. It's at its peak. Yeah, we have lots of farms around us. And I just love the feeling of driving through what feet when you have tall corn on either side of a narrow road mm. and the corn's kind of close up to the road you feel like you're driving almost right through the cornfield yeah and i got really sad because i know in a couple weeks the corn's gonna start coming down we'll start seeing the amish farmers out there taking their corn down at the end of august yep. and i f i found myself really not happy about that like mm -hmm. i'm surprised i didn't summer didn't used to be one of my favorite seasons but Something about living in the country these last 17 years has yeah. brought me really to appreciate summer. And you feel the change of season much more living in the country with the farms and the woods. And, yeah. and I just felt that coming and I, I resisted it. And I was reminded of a Springsteen song, not surprising for me, but this song came out last summer, right about this time, and it was called... Uh, hello sunshine won't you stay and he's talking about this longing for the sun the warmth of the sun the, the the light of the sun never to leave and i felt that like oh can't can't something just be permanent it was the change of season that was sad to me and which is funny because you know i love the change of season when i'm asked yeah. what's my favorite season i say i don't know i love the change of season right but i was feeling this morning the change of season coming and not wanting it and i recognize it as a longing for that which lasts forever that which is unchanging it's a longing for a heavenly homeland it's a longing for the 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 beauty that never changes or fades we're made for that and I don't know, I was just feeling that this morning. So since you asked, that's what was on yeah, my mind. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. The, it really is, if I were a poet, I would write poetry about the just what nature does all around us in the different yeah. times of year. Because it, it does touch the heart in a deep way. And the uh, corn is a significant one. Yeah. Um, lots of, lots of um, crops. You know, we have gotten over the years familiar with how they look at different times mm -hmm. of year, whether it's the preparation of fields in the spring and planting and things maturing and being harvested. Um, each has its own fascination for us. And um, I share that the, the swaying cornfields are very beautiful. And it's right about this time of year also that we'll start to see a couple red leaves yes. fall on our driveway. And that's always a, I mean, fall is not upon us clearly, but no. it's the beginning yeah. of the inklings, the hint, <laughs> the hint that is coming. So right. here we go. Lord, help me to accept the changing season as preparation for the season of heaven that is forever rejoicing in all the beauty that you are and that creation is too. 
Yes. Amen to that. Indeed. I have a question. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. uh, This is from an anonymous listener. She says, my boyfriend just shared with me that he recently began taking testosterone injections. His reasons for wanting to take them include wanting an increase in energy and improved mood and to feel better overall physically. He assures me that it is safe and his doctor has assured him it is safe as well. However, I can't help but feel a little off put by his decision his blood work indicated his t- testosterone levels were completely normal prior to the injections. He's only 25 and in great shape. I feel that he doesn't need the injections. Would you please share your perspective on this through the lens of the theology of the body? How is this different from a woman taking hormonal birth control or a person who identifies as transgender using hormone injections to transition into the opposite sex? Wow, there's a lot going on there. Uh, first, let me say I am... I am not a medical professional by any stretch of the imagination. I cannot speak into, you know, whether this is advisable from a medical perspective to take this. Maybe the doctor had some good reason. I have no no way of understanding any of that. I'm just giving some reflections here based on the nature of the question, and I want to make some distinctions. So taking uh, the, the, the pill as a woman, to render one's body unable to ovulate, that is working against the health of the body. When the pill came out in, in the early 1960s, there are many doctors who recognized prescribing the pill as a contradiction of the Hippocratic Oath, which says something to the effect, I will never give a pill or potion that works against the health of, of the organism, of the human body. Well, if you are ovulating, it doesn't mean something's going wrong. It means something's going right. If you're taking a pill to render yourself unable to ovulate, you're working in the wrong direction of your health. That's like, that's like uh, someone who has perfectly functioning eyes taking some pill to blind himself because he doesn't like seeing. No, if you see, that's the way your body's meant to work. If you're blind and you can be given sight, through some pill, then you're working in the right direction. So that's my answer to her question, how is this different from a woman taking the pill, Mm -hmm. right? So let's assume, I don't know this, but let's assume there is some medical indication for a man to take testosterone to improve his health. But she already indicated his testosterone levels are fine. So there seems to be no real reason from what she said, which is limited, yeah. To, to recommend that this guy be taking testosterone. And yet the stated purpose is all for improvements in health. And so, you know... Well, oh, he said uh, improvement in energy or yes, something like energy that. Energy and uh, mood and overall feeling of wellness. It, those, are, those are positive yeah. things. It could be that that is what's going on. And if that's what's going on, if this is serving those purposes. There's nothing wrong with it. She brought up the question, what's the difference between this and someone taking hormones for a sex change? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, clearly, he's not taking female hormones in order to grow breasts. Mm-hmm. He's taking male hormones in order to improve his mood and energy. So it is not the same there at all. However, I do want to speak into what may be a legitimate concern on her part, And it has to do with a very strong message in the culture that you're not man enough as you are, and here's some pill you can take, here's some, Mm. uh, you know, my goodness, the things that are offered on the internet 
it used to be before the age of YouTube and Facebook and the way things are marketed now. I remember back when email marketing was new, I would be getting emails in my inbox for all these pills I could take to have a, a larger male member, to put it delicately, uh, to become more a man through these energy pills, to boost your sex drive through this or that kind of pill. And they're playing on this insecurity that we have as men that we're not really manly, and they're just trying to get our money to make us, you know, to give us some placebo that, that is supposed to make us feel more manly. If that's what's going on, I would take some issue with that. Uh, but I have no, I have absolutely no way of knowing based on the mm -hmm. way she's worded the question, if that's what's going on. But maybe I do sense in her a concern and she might be, she might have a legitimate reason to have concern. Mm -hmm. I, I think, um, you know, she did ask more than one question and some of, some of which, as you said, we're not qualified to answer. I do like that you kind of were clear that not every supplemental hormone is a cause for alarm right. and it can be kind of a confusing thing, you know, oh, wait, taking a hormone, I don't think we're supposed to do that where, right. you know, that isn't necessarily the case. It, it would depend on the purpose of it. Um, so I, I really like that you explained that because we do need help to be clear. There's so much confusing messaging, as you said, and, you know, as she said, perspective through the lens of theology of the body. Um, so, you know, I think maybe what you're drawing out there is that we have messages about the value of our bodies and what makes them valued that we're receiving. And Correct. they could be contrary to yes. what the Lord says the value yes. of our bodies is. So I don't know if like there's a concluding, it's just message for men about the meaning yeah. of their bodies in relation to this other messaging that's surrounding us. Uh, that's a great insight, Wendy. Uh, I'm reminded of something John Paul II says in his letter to families. He says, Human beings are not the same as the images promoted by the mass media. Mm. We, he says we are much, much more because of the vocation to love that God has inscribed in our bodies and our, the invitation to participate through our bodies as male and female in what Scripture calls the great mystery. Mm. And that's a reference to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're created male and female and called to become one flesh because we're part of this great mystery that refers to Christ and the church. Uh, the husband is a symbol of Christ. The wife is a symbol of the church. And the joining of husband and wife in one flesh is truly a sacramental reality that conveys this astounding, astounding mystery of the divine plan. God wants to marry us, and that eternal plan is chiseled right in the sexual difference. To the degree that we root our identity in that truth, we will not be swayed by these false images and messages that say, put your identity here. Mm. Uh, the, the, the greatness of masculinity and femininity comes from how much you can intensify your sex appeal or, or how much attention you get from the opposite sex or how big your muscles are or how big your your male member is, you know, all these messages we get from a yes. culture that is, as John Paul II says, the, the great mystery of human sexuality is threatened in us and all around us. And if that's what this 
person who wrote this question is concerned about that maybe this man, did she say it was her? Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. That maybe her boyfriend is being swayed by the message of the culture, then yeah, there is, there's cause for concern. Um, the invitation would be to, for both of you to dive more deeply into the great mystery together. Uh, I'd recommend that the two of you maybe spend some time going through some videos on YouTube about theology of the body. I have plenty on my YouTube channel. Uh, just search Christopher West on, on YouTube or uh, maybe go through a book together. Uh, if you like my approach to it, my book, Theology of the Body for Beginners, would be a great place to start. Together, I, I would suggest reading 10 pages a week separately and then maybe getting together and, and talking about mm -hmm. it and just letting whatever's getting stirred come up. Mm -hmm. I think that could be a fruitful uh, experience for this couple. Our next question is from Heather. She says, hey, Heather. Uh, Heather says, recently I heard of someone talking about the characteristic of being, quote, selfless and how this may not in fact be something praiseworthy in the sense of denying our goodness as a person by saying I'm selfless. Could you comment on this in light of theology of the body and how by growing in relationship to God are we to become more fully ourselves? And is the idea of being selfless and fully myself congruent? Wow. I like that question. Uh, lots of things are spinning in my mind. First, I'm thinking of uh, the teaching from the Second Vatican Council that John Paul II repeated over and over and over again, and so much of his theology of the body is based right on it. Yeah, I had that same thing in my mind. Man can only find himself through the sincere gift of himself, yes. I think is the, the phrase. And that came to my mind. Gift of self is not the same as selfless, but yeah, that, that message really was kind of coming to my mind just as you were saying that. Yeah, so what does that mean that man can, and man meaning all of us, male and female, the human being can only find himself through the sincere gift of self? And let me give more context to that main teaching. The, the context around that, Gaudium et Spes is this document from the Second Vatican Council um, that says, uh, in the full context of that, is Jesus Christ opened vistas closed to human reason. In other words, he's about to tell us something we can only know through revelation. It's not something we can figure out on our own. He said, How so, beautiful. Yeah, the Second Vatican Council says, again, Jesus Christ opened vistas closed to human reason when he posited a likeness between the communion in the Trinity and the communion of the children of God in truth and love. Well, what does that mean? This is based on the scripture when Jesus prays that all would be one as, that's the key word, as he and the Father are one. Mm. So there's this oneness in the Trinity that we are invited into. And, and the human being, it goes on to say, is the only creature created for its own sake. Meaning to use another person for your sake is a violation of the dignity of that person. So how, how can I enter into the mystery of another person without violating the dignity of that person? The Second Vatican Council says it follows because we're made for our own sake. It follows then because we're made for our own sake and because we're called to mirror this communion 
of Trinitarian love, it follows that the human person can only find himself through the sincere gift of self. Only by being a gift to another can, can I enter into the mystery of the other without violating the dignity of the other. And of course, the other has to open freely to receive my gift and make that gift. So we have here, this is a long about way of, of answering this question, but we are getting to it. Mm -hmm. I think the distinction that needs to be made here about selflessness, where can selflessness go off the rails? Selflessness can go off the rails when we forget that we are also in need of receiving the gift of others. As human beings, as creatures, the very nature of the creature is that we are in a posture of need. We are in a posture of receptivity. And selflessness to an extreme can, can become this idea of, I don't need anything from anybody else. I find my identity in providing for the needs of others, and I get to the place where I'm not even able to receive that I too am in need, and I need to receive the gift of others. And it can become, this is selflessness off the rails, right? Selflessness as a general concept, we're all called to love selflessly. And loving selflessly is this call to make a gift of myself to others. John Paul II uses the term disinterested gift of self, which doesn't mean I'm not interested in the other. I'm deeply interested in the other, but not in a selfish way. I'm not trying to exact something out of you or, or, or grasp something or possess you, I'm not trying to dominate or control you for my own selfish needs. That's what we mean by the disinterested or selfless or word the Second Vatican Council uses is sincere gift of self. That's all wonderful, that's all beautiful, that's all right, that's all necessary if we are to learn to love, but it is also necessary in learning to love to recognize our need to receive the gift of others and not fall into a certain pride that would, would lead to a selflessness that refuses to recognize my need as well. John Paul II says, the giving and receiving of the gift in love interpenetrates, and both need both. If you look at the theology of a man's body, his body is disposed towards making this gift. A woman's body is disposed towards receiving that gift. But John Paul II says, in the very receiving of the gift, receiving becomes giving. And in giving of the gift, the giving becomes receiving. So in order for love to have its proper balance in human relationships, we need that, that interpenetration of giving and receiving. I hope I'm getting here. You can tell me, Wendy, if you think I am or not. I hope I'm getting here to the heart of, of Heather's question. I, what do you think? I love the way you're um, just making the concepts of our church teaching very pertinent to everyone's life, because we can think of it as just words on papers somewhere that, yeah. you know, is not about me. Especially that opening line about Christ opening vistas, yeah. not open to human reason, or not, is that the yeah, right that's, word? Yeah, Christ opened vistas to us not accessible through not human accessible. reason. Not accessible, so that's the that saying, like, there's an incredible gift to our lives in just pondering the life of Christ and the words of Christ to give meaning to questions like this, like, am I supposed to be selfless? Well, 
how and what does that look like? And I, I think of lots of examples right now when we're thinking about selflessness because we have so many challenges going on with the um, coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. We have such difficult questions, doctors and healthcare workers who are getting maybe exhausted by their commitment to the good of yeah. others, um, or or teachers who aren't sure whether their their love for their students right good you know, good is example yeah expressing that's is there a way to express that that's selfless to a, a wrong degree depending on their circumstances so many questions about people especially who have been in a, a not every relationship is is equal in the way that right. marriage is and right, that right, call right. to be selfless or to make a gift of ourselves can be in relationships where the other person isn't called to necessarily meet our needs, but we still need to recognize our need. You know, that kind of fundamental principle, a creature is, is in need. You know, that are we making the right provisions for our full humanity, for our yes, yes. giving glory to God by, you know, really valuing the gift of our own life and well-being properly. I'm thinking right now of Mother Teresa early in the founding of the Missionaries of Charity. In her zeal for loving the poor, was she herself and her sisters were only eating as much as the people they were serving right. who were starving. And they were corrected for that, that they should, in fact, eat more in order to provide for their their own self in order to make that gift to the people that they were serving. So. You're bringing up an excellent point here that could be summarized as follows. You, you, you cannot give if you are not also in that posture of receiving. Mm -hmm. You can't give what you don't have. If Mother Teresa and her nuns are starving to death, how are they going to serve yeah. those who are starving to death? Not very well. Not very well. <laughs> and, and I see this, if I can point out something that I love about you and how much I have learned from you, Wendy, in your selfless attitude. You are so oriented towards others. And I always learn from you when we're having a party, for example, people mm -hmm. coming over the house, you know the needs of other people's children. Like, you know their preferences, you know what toys to get out for them. And I'm like, what the, how, how does she even know this stuff? There, there's a there's a beautiful selflessness in you from which I learn over and over and over again. But I also have seen you run out of steam. Right. Where you get to the point where you're you've been so concerned for others, you've neglected your own needs and you get to a place of of hitting a wall and you just say I just need somebody to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And you know that that that's a beautiful place of humility to recognize, I just need somebody to take care of me. Yeah. Uh, this actually just happened last evening. I'll just share this quickly. I was yeah. grocery shopping, and I needed to get home and make dinner after shopping. And as I was out, I just felt that you depletion. Hit the wall. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing. I don't have anything left to give anybody. And the thought of just something I do all the time just preparing dinner and it just felt like I couldn't do it and I thankfully you and our children were willing to 
step in. And I just actually left the house and went to pray. And, you know, I needed that. You needed it. Yes, I felt it. I was so grateful for you for sending me out. So, yeah, I came back better. (laughs) Good. So that's that's a great way to just sum up the point. Like selfless, yes, yes, but not to the point of not recognizing our need for others to be selfless in our regard, right? right? Yes. So to serve and to to allow others to serve us too. The giving and receiving of the gift. That's I hope that's helpful, Heather. Our next question is from Roberta. She says, hello. Hello, Roberta. I'm reading your book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. Oh, that's the one for, for the Protestant audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She says, I would love to hear you speak more about quote, the new ethos. Is this like a much more powerful way of discernment? Now, she doesn't say more powerful than what, but I, hmm. I, I am intrigued by how just speak more about the new ethos. Okay. Uh, well, let's, let's define our terms for everybody, all our listeners out there. John Paul uses both the word ethic and ethos to get at different truths, uh, particularly in his reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. And the line that we're looking at is, you've heard the commandment not to commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So that sets up the, the, the terms ethic and ethos. Ethic, we can see those words, obviously, they're related right? Ethic, ethos. But ethic refers to the objective law or the objective commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard the commandment not to commit adultery. We could just as well say, you've heard the ethic not to commit adultery. But the problem, whenever whenever Jesus says, but, we know we're going to be taken to a new level. We're going to be taken to something deeper. Ethos goes deeper than ethic. Ethos refers to our inner desires, our inner values, what attracts us, what repulses us, uh, that's our ethos. So Jesus is saying, in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard the ethic not to commit adultery, but the problem is your ethos is off. You are actually attracted to committing adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't want to just shove the ethic down our throats. He wants to present to us, and not only present to us, but enable us to live a new ethos. In other words, he wants to transform our hearts so that our values are correct, not just objectively, I know adultery is wrong, uh, not just so we have objective rules that may be well and good and proper and right and just, he wants to transform our hearts, right? And we all know that it's possible to follow the law externally without an internal transformation. And when that happens, we have a situation that Jesus was very stern about. Uh, and we have what we would typically call that pharisaical approach. Not that all the Pharisees live this way, but the Pharisees that Jesus was quite uh, harsh with were those who who followed the rules externally. He called them whitewashed tombs. He says, you're all clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus did not die on a cross and rise from the dead 
just to give us a list of rules to follow. We already had those rules in the Old Testament. What is new about the New Testament? What is new about the New Testament is the possibility of the transformation of ethos, the change of heart. Uh, the goal, to the degree that our, our hearts are transformed, to the, to the degree that the law is written on our hearts, to the degree that we live this new ethos, guess what happens? This amazing, beautiful, wonderful thing happens. We experience what St. Paul called freedom from the law. And here we don't mean freedom to break the law. We mean freedom to fulfill the law because we no longer desire to break it. This is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. And, and tragically, a lot of people, when it comes to Christianity, they haven't really entered into the juice, <laughs> the good news of Christianity. They're kind of still stuck in the Old Testament, just trying to follow the rules. St. Augustine says it so well. He says, the law was given so that grace might be sought, and grace was given so that the law might be fulfilled. Well, what does that mean? The law was given so grace might be sought. In other words, the law is given to us to show us how our ethos is messed up, and grace is given to us to enable us to live a true Christian ethos. And speaking specifically of the question of sexual morality and, and lust in the heart, John Paul II says, Christian ethos is an invitation to a transformation, that's the key word, transformation of the inner attitudes and desires of the human heart, such as to express and realize the value of the body and sex according to the Creator's original plan. This is the invitation. This is the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Catechism says it uh, in, in its own way when it says, Christ came into the world to restore creation to the purity of its origins. So if you want to grow in the Christian ethos, here's all you need to ask yourself. What laws do you still need? When you recognize the laws that you still need, you also recognize where your heart needs to be transformed. Let me give you an example. When I'm in front of an audience, I'll, I'll pick on a married guy and I'll say, Bill, uh, do you have any desire to murder your wife, Jane? And uh, usually he says, no, that's a good thing. Yes. <laughs> Although sometimes people mess with me. Um, so I'll say, good, Bill. I'm, I'm glad you don't have any desire to murder your wife. Now, and I'll say, Bill, do you need the commandment, thou shalt not murder thy wife? And he says, well, no, I don't need that commandment. Exactly. He doesn't need the commandment because he has no desire to break it. He's free from that law. The law doesn't feel like a burden on him. And then I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll kind of milk the example and I'll say, Jane, uh, have you ever seen Bill pounding his fist saying, why don't those old celibate men in Rome just stay out of my marriage? What, what do they know about marriage anyway? Who are they to tell me I can't murder my wife? And, you know, there's laughter in the <laughs> audience and everybody gets my point that, and here's the point, we're, we're only bitter towards the law when we desire to break it. Maybe the problem when we're bitter towards some law or some commandment, maybe the problem is not with the commandment. Maybe the problem is not with the ethic, to put it back in these terms. Maybe the problem is that our ethos is messed up. For all of us, there's a huge gap between God's ethic and our ethos. 
we all know we need to narrow that gap. And most of us think that, well, the shortcut to narrowing that gap is just to water down God's ethic to the level of my current ethos. Then I don't have to change. But here's the good news of grace. And this is what Augustine's point is. The law, the ethic is given. Let's put it in that language. The ethic is given so that grace might be sought. And grace is given so that our ethos might be transformed to the point that the law is written on our hearts and we no longer desire to break it. To the degree that we no longer desire to break all of God's laws, to that degree we are free with the freedom for which Christ has set us free. That's the new ethos in a nutshell, and, and that's the gospel. That's, what's, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel good news. It's not just a reiteration of the, of the commandments. We already have the commandments. What's new about the New Testament? The grace that enables that inner transformation. Uh, how do we experience that inner transformation? By dying and rising. When we butt into our, our desire to break the law, we have to open that up right then and there. Lord, I, I see this, this desire in me to, to break this commandment. I think I'm going to have some, something to gain there. I think there's something to benefit me and, and fill in the blank, whatever you might be thinking of. But Lord, I, I open this broken place of my own heart to you. I'm ready and willing to die with you to that disordered desire. And I entrust that there's a resurrection of my desire on the other side. And since we're talking here about the Sermon on the Mount, we can say this, and I can testify to this in my own life. There is a false promise being held out when, when a temptation to lust says, here's what you want, you know, click on this internet porn and you'll get something out of it. There's a false promise there. Right in the temptation to lust, we can say, Lord, I give this lustful desire to you. And I ask you, please, by the power of your death and resurrection, crucify that lust in me, but raise up in me an appreciation for the true beauty of human sexuality. Raise up in me a, a, a vision and an understanding and a realization of the true, good, and beautiful plan you have for making us male and female. God's plan for making us male and female, God's plan for the two becoming one flesh, is far more attractive than the lustful counterfeits of pornography, right? And, and we overcome a, a disordered attraction by a rightly ordered attraction. We overcome a disordered love by rightly ordered love. The only way to overcome a, a disordered desire is by a more powerful attraction and a more powerful desire for the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's the revelation of the new ethos. That's the freedom of the new ethos. And it's for this freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen. I hope that's helpful to Roberta I and think, to all our listeners. Yeah, I really do believe it will be because we all, all have areas where we need that grace to transform our ethos. Yes. And what you said about the word discernment, although I'm not sure exactly what she was getting at, I sense that in the in the way of recognizing the movements of grace, which is kind of a sort of spiritual journey expression, you know, where is grace leading me or calling me? And it's where is God reaching out to me in love for my good? That this just reflecting on ethic and ethos gives us the ears to hear and the heart to desire to follow the movements of grace in that, yes. uh, that are such 
so abundantly poured out for us. So we are just so grateful, so grateful for the gifts of thank you, Lord. Of thank redemption, you, Lord. Thank of, you, Lord. And of the teaching that helps us to receive that redemption ever more deeply. Here's one of the real sad things, and I'll, I'll close here: that you can be raised in the church and never hear about this new possibility. Mm-hmm. I know the way Christianity was presented to me growing up was just a list of rules to follow. And if that's all it is, then we're still stuck in the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm thinking of this line, which really puts a bow on everything I wanted to say. Uh, it's right in the scripture. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Mm. The truth that sets us free by the power of grace theology of the body is all about entering into that grace that enables us really and truly to live transformed lives. So we invite all of you out there, continue learning. I've been at this full-time learning John Paul's teaching for over 25 years, and there's always, always, always more. I was recommending my uh, Theology of the Body for Beginners earlier. We'll put that link in the show notes for anybody who wants to pick up that book and get into a deeper dive. If you really want to go for it, if you've already read Beginners, I would recommend Theology of the Body Explained, which is a, gosh, a 500, 600 page commentary unfolding all the riches of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. If you've already read that and you're ready to go right into John Paul II's teaching directly, then skip me and go right to the horse's mouth and read John Paul II's Theology of the Body yourself. We'll have the links for all those resources in the show notes. We're so happy that you're on this journey with us. We love doing these podcasts for you. We look forward to the next episode. And until then, remember, as always, you are a gift, indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.